thank you for uh, being willing to care about that too. It means a lot to me. Thank you, Nancy. We're going to talk about lust. Um, that's probably the only introduction I need, right, for the talk. Usually you need something more catchy. We were singing before in our first song, uh, there's good news for the captive and good news for the shamed. So come and be chainless, come and be fearless, come to the foot of Calvary. Uh, I used to worry when I would talk about sex at church that people would, you know, Twitter and laugh and feel embarrassed and... Now when I think about it, I expect that it's going to be like the most painful uh, sermon that some people have to hear because the whole subject is brutally painful for them. For others, it's going to just drag up every ounce of shame in them uh, because of uh, failure and bad experience and feeling like you're in chains with regard to sexuality. And so... I really want you to hear what we sang in the song and what we're going to talk about more toward the end of the sermon, um, that Jesus isn't trying to shame us or increase our pain with regard to sexuality. He's come to set us free, uh, to take away our shame, to give us the hope that we really can be chainless one day, and that our desires, instead of working against us and betraying us, uh, can be the very servants of what's beautiful in God's creation. So that's what we're going to talk about, the bad and the good. Uh, Frederick Bigner said that sex is like nitroglycerin. You can blow up bridges with it, and you can heal hearts with it. And we all feel both sides of that. And we're going to talk about both sides of that. Uh, but I want to start with the healing heart side of it and the passage that we're going to read from the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, which you can look at, which is the, the starting point biblically to talk about sex, which is the delightful, well-ordered, beautiful gift of God that we are not supposed to be embarrassed of, but to be really happy about. And so let me pray, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit's help to come. Uh, to not only open our minds to you, but also open our hearts to you and places where we're afraid to open our hearts to you, where we're embarrassed for having failed you so many times, where we're hurt in ways that we don't even know how to start processing. And, um, but also where we have hopes that uh, redemption can really mean beauty in our lives again, even where we don't feel like it's possible. So come help us, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. Don't get creeped out. He doesn't mean his real sister. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar. My bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates. That's good. Um, with all choices, fruits, henna and nard. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. With all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. With all choice spices. 
a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, and let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Oh, it's fun to talk about what's good because uh, we're just always so confronted um, in a culture that promised us that we would be sexually free. So constantly confronted with what's bad, the, the uh, blowing up bridges part of sex, not the healing of hearts part of it. Um, last week, before I was uh, providentially hindered, um, I had examples from the weekly news where I'd seen one in three women worldwide from the World Health Organization's study. One in three women worldwide has been the victim of physical or sexual abuse. And then stories of football coaches and administrators losing their jobs because of how they had behaved with women and governors who were on the verge of losing their jobs because of it. And you don't have to read far to find stories anytime. But this week, I was reading with a broken heart about my city, Atlanta, and uh, the murders that happened there. And those murders shine such a light on the complex pathologies that um, don't all spring directly from lust, but are related to lust and impossible to disconnect from lust. When you read about those murders, you see the normal part of lust, which is selfishness, uh, separating sex from intimacy and relationship, but depersonalizing people and objectifying people sexually was part of the motivation of the murderer. Loneliness and emptiness, which um, lust promises to fulfill but doesn't, exacerbated uh, his problems. Shame and failure, again, which lust promises to ameliorate, it instead exacerbates and drove his problems further. And then lust began to do what it does, which is to branch out into other deadly sins, like anger and misogyny and racism and overt violence, and in this case, uh, murder. And also along with that, these events shine a light on the church's unhelpfulness in these matters because the church has, I hope, well, in, with good intentions, somehow taught people to blame women for men's lust, that it's women's fault as temptresses uh, when men lust, which seems to have been clearly in the mind of the man who committed these murders. And the church also has tried to use shame and guilt to try to fix the disordered desires of our lustful hearts. And because the law can't fix us, shame and guilt only make the problems worse instead of better. It's an extreme example, I know, um, uh, but boy, it touches on things that are common to all of us, both in our struggles with lust and the disordering of our desires sexually and sensually. Um, we are troubled in many of the same ways. And so when we come to talk about lust as a deadly sin, we're not just trying to deal with squeamishness and a little misbehavior uh, uh, with regard to sex. Um, 
we're shining a light on our own hearts and deep and pretty complex brokenness and disordered desire uh, on a fundamental level in our lives. And so if we're going to do that, we also need help on a fundamental level in our lives and not just a little bit better behavior. So um, it's easy to to talk this week about lust being a deadly sin, Uh, but it's spiritually deadly for all of us. So I want us to talk about disordered desires, the blowing up bridges part of sex, and then well-ordered and delighted desire, which is what God created sex for in the first place. But first, the blowing up bridges part, the disordered desires. Um, Lust, a lot of times, seems like a less insidious sin than some of the other deadly sins. You know, it doesn't... We don't hate people for it the same way we hate them for envy. You know, we don't despise it in them as we would say for envy or something like that. Because it's it's kind of a warm-hearted rather than a cold-hearted sin, at least as it starts out. Um, But you probably know in your own life that... Um, these warm-hearted sins that seem excusable can get cold really fast and can drive a whole lot of meanness in our lives together and drive us apart from other people. The church has a reputation for being prudish about sex, and um, I wish I weren't going to dispel that as much as I am tonight, Uh, but you can see why prudishness is tempting. You know, when you see how... Badly, the culture has delivered on its promise of sexual freedom and instead given us chains and shame. Um, Prudishness starts to look like a pretty good option. But prudishness is itself a distorted desire. Prudishness is not a godly desire, I mean, a a well-ordered godly desire about sex. Um, It's a reaction to sexual brokenness. And so it's not the biblical way forward. Um, Here's a... I have a quote that I wrote down at some point from someone, but since I can't remember, this is what I always say. Um, Lust takes sex, which is meant to be a life-uniting act, meant to make people open and trusting and safe and vulnerable and loved. And lust takes that, and it makes us instead untrusting, invulnerable, and despairing of being loved with real intimacy. It hardens us instead of opening us. It does the opposite of what God intended for it to do for us. It's taken God's good gift and turned it into a bad God. And we suffer the consequences of worshiping that bad God. And let me count the ways. This is not an exhaustive list, but first, as I mentioned before, lust is selfish. Lust cuts the tie between, uh, uh, between sex and intimacy. And lust uh, is selfish, looking only to its own fulfillment rather than mutual self-giving, as God intended it to be. Right? So it, it makes us selfish. And in most cases, the last thing in the world that lust wants is to know someone. Uh, Rebecca DeYoung, who wrote a great book about the seven deadly sins, uh, used this example. She said, if exotic dancers were, went by their real names and before they appeared on stage, uh, they read a bit of their biography, you know, and said, you know, you know, this is Fawn Knudsen from Minnesota and uh, 
Her parents divorced when she was six. She's had a pretty bad experience with men inside and outside her family since then. She has two children of her own that she's really desperate to care for. Uh, wants to become a dental hygienist, but uh, can't afford to do that yet. Said it would empty out the room, right? Because uh, what people want in lust is not to know someone or to be connected to someone, but rather to be gratified in a selfish way. Right? Lust distorts our desires that way and makes our sexual desires selfish. Uh, secondly, lust leaves us lonely and empty instead of connected to someone else deeply. It promises relief from loneliness and emptiness, but it doesn't deliver relief from loneliness and emptiness. We live in a culture where I think you can generalize and say most people despair of intimacy. We just don't think that it's ever going to be possible to have real intimacy with someone we're told uh, not overtly, but covertly mostly, that if you really want to have a chance at being deeply loved and treasured and have intimacy with another person, then you had better have a certain perfect body type or you'll never get it. Intimacy and love are for people with a certain body type that almost nobody has, right? That's what we're told. And so women live under a crushing expectation from pornography and pornography culture uh, to live and present themselves and look a certain way. And it's crushing and isolating, and it drives people into loneliness and, and em emptiness. Uh, Naomi Wolf, who's a frank speaker, said this, in our culture, because of the way that we have treated women and our sexual freedom, she said a real naked woman is just bad porn. Does that make you feel free? Does that feel like sexual freedom to you? Because it doesn't to me. And then lust makes you ashamed. It promises relief from shame, but it tends to drive you more deeply into shame. Both in walks of shame, but uh, more commonly in the cycles of uh, pornographic compulsion. Because shame drives people to pornography for relief and pornography makes people more ashamed, and so it drives them back to pornography, which causes them to be more ashamed, and that cycle perpetuates, and it's brutal for people, and it makes you lonelier and emptier than you ever would have been. And then you start getting the corollary, uh, collateral damage from lust, because when people steep in their shame for very long, they start to become angry. And now out of lust grows anger and misogyny. As uh, so much of what's portrayed pornographically uh, displays, it's angry and misogynistic. Uh, a grasp for power over women. It certainly seems to be what, is, what drove the young man in Atlanta. And this violence causes women to live um, in nervousness, if not outright fear, from leers and catcalls on one hand to actual attacks, which are exceedingly common in and outside of homes. And uh, we're the enlightened generation about sex, though, aren't we? We're nailing it, right? We, we've got it down. Everything's going great for us with sex. 
And blaming women for my failures, blaming women for my loneliness, um, leads to hatred of women. The Bible talks about this explicitly. Um, Remember King David, who himself um, was something of a predator, had a child whose cousin talked him into raping his sister. He was just so eaten up with desire for her. And then he attacked her. And as soon as he had, he hated her, he said. He hated her and blamed her. That's how, that's how lust does us. Promising freedom, it doesn't deliver freedom. It delivers pathology. And it takes God's good gift and turns it into a bad God. But this isn't just a behavior problem. I think most of us know that. Ultimately, it's a religious problem. It's a religious problem. Uh, Bruce Marshall, back in the day, had a, a, a novel from which a, a more famous quote than the novel. But in it, the character, the priest Father Smith, said, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. When a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. So I want to talk about what we're really looking for, what we really need, what, what a well-ordered, delightful, life-affirming, intimacy-enhancing uh, view of sensuality and sexuality could look like. First, just think about the passage we read. Now, the Song of Solomon's kind of hard to understand because you keep thinking, there's got to be like more going on here than just them being really excited about sex. <laughs> But there's not less going on than that in the Song of Solomon, and there's a reason it's in the Bible. Prudish people have thought about trying to take it out of the Bible and and never can come up with a reason to. Um, But God has this here for us. And so the first question you want to ask when you think about what's a well-ordered desire, if you're going to talk about disordered desires, you need to kind of have a notion of what a well-ordered desire would be. And so you kind of have to ask, what is sex after all? which you'd think was kind of an easy question, but it's not that easy of a question uh, for people to answer. Some people answer the question kind of in mystical terms, like, man, this is you know the path to enlightenment, kind of an Eastern idea, somewhat of sex, but most people I talk to don't give that answer about what sex is. Most people I ask say sex is just an urge. It's an itch, right? And so when you have an itch, you scratch, right? And that's what sex is. And that's supposed to be a sufficient answer. It reminds me, every time I hear somebody say that, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis uh, in Narnia when Eustace was talking about stars and he was talking to Aslan and he said, in my world, you know, stars are huge balls of flaming gas. And Aslan said, oh, my son, even in your world, that's not what stars are. That's just what they're made of. And I think when you say sex is just an itch, it's just a biological urge. I say, no, that's not what it is. That's just what it's made of, right? Um, Just what it's made of. Biblically speaking, sex is God's good creation. right? He made us sensual. He made us sexual in a way that delights Him apparently when He finished making us male and female, put us in the garden, and He said, this is very good. Very good. God says that about sex. And that's a little hard to get your mind around sometimes. But what it's good for is something instrumental in an intimate relationship. It's a life-uniting act 
for people whose lives are united financially, emotionally, and permanently. That's what it's for. It's, it's the sacrament of that covenant union, if you want to put it in those terms. Um, but if you take it out of that context, you turn it into a lie. Right? You say, well, I'm, I won't be one with you in any other way in my life, but I want to be one with you in this way. And so it professes an intimacy that we're not willing to embrace. And that makes it destructive. That's why the limit on sexuality biblically is in a marriage relationship that is financially and emotionally and permanently united. That's the point of it. It's not because we're squeamish about sex that it's limited that way. It's because we think it's more than just an itch. I've used this before. I've said, but you know, if you've got a beautiful vase in your house, you don't use it to hold the toilet brush. And it's not, you don't do that because you're squeamish about vases. (laughs) It's because you think vases are awesome, right? Um, When when the Bible limits uh, sexual experience that way, it does it because it's precious, not because it's dirty. Um, But it's even more than just the instrumental bond in a whole life united relationship. Um, It's also a signpost to God for us because God says in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 5, that um, it's an illustration for us of God's love for the church. The connection between a husband and wife that way is, uh, is a description for us, good one as we have, of God's love for us. The real intimacy that we're made for is intimacy with God. And the best analogy we have for it is a, uh, is a good or beautiful marriage right, in life. So it's, in a sense, the person at the brothel looking for God is a biblical notion. Right, that um, Intimacy with another human being. Deep friendships do this too, but they point us to our real need for intimacy with God, what will really fill us, will make us fully human and fully alive to be loved and, uh, and by someone that knows us through and through, that, that we can trust completely. That's what we're made for. And sex is a signpost to point us that way. So is there any hope if your delight has uh, devolved into shame and despair of love? Is it possible to become whole again? And... Um, Yeah, it is. (laughs) We have a rescuer, right? We have a rescuer who says, you can come and be chainless. Uh, There's hope for the shamed. Uh, There's hope for the mistreated. There's hope for the broken in Jesus Christ. That's why we bother to talk about this instead of just trying to use behavior modification to mitigate our bad behavior and just try not to do anything really harmful. We hope for more than that. We hope that people like us can really flourish and thrive and be changed under the grace of God. And that's an amazing thing to be able to hope for. Is that such good news for us to be able to indulge? The church's answer to uh, sexual sin and lust is usually, though, not very good. It's usually, hear now the law. You should be ashamed of what you're looking at. As if you weren't. As if that weren't why you're looking You should use your willpower to just say no. 
as if the Bible has any impressive confidence in our willpower. It doesn't. Or fear. You'll get a disease. You'll get a disease. But these things don't change people. Because what's broken in us is not just a little bad behavior. What's broken in us... Someone... I gave Nikki the wrong New Testament reading. Uh, Hers was scarier. (laughs) But it's... uh, The one I wanted to write down was where Jesus says it's out of the heart that flow the issues of life. You know, adulteries come out of the heart. You know, it's not external things that cause us to sin. It's internal. Our problems run really deep. Or as someone else put it with regard to lust, he said the problem is much more the heart above your belt than the heat beneath it. Right? Because our problems are heart problems that behavior modification can't fix. But Jesus can fix. That's why our hope is in Jesus and not in the law when it comes to issues of disordered desires that need to become well-ordered and delightful. So our hope is in Jesus. The the New Testament passage, which was written down correctly, uh, says the grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no to disordered desires. The grace of God has appeared teaching us to say no. Not the law of God has appeared. The law of God has appeared, and it did say say no to disordered desires, but the law has no power to change your desire. But the grace of Jesus does have power to change your desire because it's relational healing between you and God, and Jesus comes into your life and can actually change things down at the level of your desires, which is pretty amazing. So if you're dealing with shame, which you probably are dealing with shame, We're told that Jesus carried our shame to the cross. And that he knows everything about you. Everything you've done, everything you've thought, your whole browser history, everything. And has not turned his face away from you for a second. That he loves you. And he is not ashamed of you. A person who knows you inside and out, who's not ashamed of you. How astounding is that? I mean, the more you learn about yourself, the more ashamed of you you are. How sure are you that if others knew your deep, dark secrets, they would be ashamed of you? And Jesus is not ashamed of you and has carried your shame to the cross and nailed it to the cross. And it's really gone. Like, we're going to live when we get our minds around it probably in the next life, not this one, shamelessly, with great joy. That's pretty good, isn't it? (laughs) Feel guilty about sex? There's real forgiveness for real sins in Jesus Christ. He's not fooled about your sins. He doesn't think they're not bad. He's died for them. He takes them very seriously, but He's taken them away. As far as the East is from the West, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. He doesn't think about them. He doesn't ruminate on the shameful things you have done and thought and said, like you do. You lonely? There's a friend that's closer than a lover who is your friend. Jesus Christ. doesn't mean it's not hard to be alone. It means it's bearable. It means you don't have to settle for something degrading. 
Because you've got someone who loves you and who's with you. You despair that your heart's gotten too hard to ever change, to ever experience intimacy or love somebody. The grace of Jesus Christ can melt the hardest heart. There are people in here who will tell you that's true. If you don't believe it, I'll tell you that's true. Selfish. How do you ever change from being selfish? We have somebody who cares for you and loves you and provides for you so well that you don't have to constantly be self-protective and looking out for yourself because He looks out for you. This is where there's hope in Jesus, not in, you know, you better not do the wrong thing anymore and look at what you shouldn't look at and be with who you're with. And It's the heart stuff that needs to change, but it can change. And if your empty life starts to even get a little bit filled by Jesus, there's real change that happens. Right, your, your desires really can be reordered. You're made to live with beautiful, delightful desires that don't degrade you but ennoble you. And Jesus is eager for you and willing for you to experience that. Dante, last word you heard from Virgil after they kind of came through purgatory, I'm not advocating for purgatory, because uh, it's not in the Bible. It's a great idea, but it's not in the Bible. But anyway, so they're, when they're coming out of purgatory, and so Dante's now free and on his way to paradise, uh, Virgil's last words to him are this. He says, uh, Make pleasure now thy guide. Like when, a, when a human being is restored to real humanness, pleasure can be your guide to what thrills and delights and pleases God and ennobles you instead of something you have to always be worried about and careful about and misled by. Make pleasure now your guide. We may not get there until... Uh, Jesus comes back or we die and go be with Him. But um, but where we can get to in the meantime, we can sing songs like Solomon did. You can get to the place where without a lot of shame or despair can say things like, Blow, O north wind, <laughs> and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden and let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choices. Let's pray.